Welcome to No Compromise Radio, a ministry coming to you from Bethlehem Bible Church in West Boylston. No Compromise Radio is a program dedicated to the ongoing proclamation of Jesus Christ. Based on the theme in Galatians 2 verse 5, where the Apostle Paul said, But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. In short, if you like smooth, watered-down words to make you simply feel good, this show isn't for you. By purpose, we are first biblical but we can also be controversial. Stay tuned for the next 25 minutes as we're called by the divine trumpet to summon the troops for the honor and glory of her king. Here's our host, Pastor Mike Abendroth. Welcome to No Compromise Radio Ministry, SBC and MLA. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that how we would work? MLA, I think, that not that some kind of like Reference guide for uh, research papers, MLA? Or? Could be. I mean, I always think of ML, and then I think of ML Carr, and then I stop thinking about ML. Because <laughs> he was a basketball player that, you know, was always a thorn in the Lakers' side. Yeah, let's not even get started talking about the Celtics. Let's not, let's not do that. Who were some, What was the really tough guy that the Lakers got late in his career? I think he came from Portland, and he was an enforcer, Maurice Lucas. Did they get him late in his career? Uh huh. Yeah, he was a Laker for a while. Mm. Somebody I hated, but then once the Lakers got him, yeah, I was then happy. he was okay. Yeah. How could how could I ever not root for the Lakers like now? Trust me, if you if you track them like I've been tracking them, it's pretty hard to root for those heartless scoundrels these days. So, mm. and shouldn't they be winning? They've got three of the best players on the planet, right? But two of the three just can't stay on the court. Huh. Well, at least they allow them on the court, unlike Kyrie in New York City. Yeah, let's not even go down that road, though, because I heard some stuff about the Celtics this morning about the, those inoculations. So, All right. Well, we are doing the White Horse Inn quiz, section two, part two, chapter two, right? There's tw- 20 questions we have in our quiz, I think 19 yes. for the White Horse Inn. Yes. We did the first 10. Mm-hmm. Would it be good for our listeners to go back and... No. <laughs> they should they should listen to the last episode. <laughs> Stop what you're doing. Go back. And so we're up to number 11, and they're all true, false, and they're basic doctrinal things. If you go online, you can pull this up yourself, and they give you the questions, the, and then you submit them, and they send you the answer sheet, and they put you on their mailing list. <laughs> <laughs> then you're done. I watched a couple of the League and Air messages for their national conference. Uh, I watched a Q&A, and I watched Sinclair Ferguson. He's always worth watching. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Indubitably. (laughs) Question 11. They're all true, false. I'll ask Steve and then he can give me kind of an answer. We're not reading their answers. We just do our own answers, right? Yes. The Bible teaches that there is an age of accountability and that children who die before this age go to heaven because they are innocent. It's in 2 Hebrews. The... (laughs) That's false. I, I mean, it, it's interesting to me. Interesting to me because I grew up in a system that had an age of accountability, and that age was eight. Seriously? Yes. I did not know yeah, that. Mormons, yeah, because I was, I was baptized a member of the church on um, March second, nineteen sixty eight, when I turned. I just turned eight, and so the very next uh, uh, first of the month, I got baptized uh, on a Saturday, and then confirmed a member on Sunday, and that's the, that's the way they did things, and. Uh, you know, there was something magical about the age of eight. Now, I mean, I've heard other ages suggested seven. Some people say eight. Some people say 13, 12. 13 yeah, or 13. Bar mitzvah. Yeah. So, I mean, all sorts of ideas. But 
where does the Bible address this? Either directly, I mean, you could argue indirectly. I don't, I don't really think there's even an indirect answer. So I, I would say this, that if they're, if they're elect, they go to heaven. Uh, if they're not, then they don't. But I, I, I mean, my own personal conviction, and that's what it is, conviction, just reading in the kind of the implications of the Bible is that uh, children who die before they're able, whatever that age might be, you know, they're in God's hands, but I trust that he would, uh, he would take them to himself. So, Well, Steve, it's false because some of it's false, and that is because there is they're no innocent. Yeah, there is. Right? Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Look, you look at no, Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's interesting. Why, why would anybody die? Um, the answer has to be sin. And so people died because Adam's sin was credited to their account. This yep. is even before Mosaic law or anything like that. And they have a conscience. And so the fall has affected everyone. That's why the Spirit of God had to hover over the womb of Mary when Jesus was there because we wanted to make sure he was, or God made sure he wasn't tainted. And therefore, when it comes to accountability, there's no age. And that's why we preach the gospel to our kids when they're little. And we just trust the Lord that he'll do the right thing. And if, in fact, like you said, uh, there are the children that die are in heaven, right? Every tribe, tongue, nation um, is represented in heaven. That's an argument for that. David's death of his child was an mm-hmm. argument for that. But God will do the right thing. When we're in heaven, we'll say, Lord, you did the right thing. And no one, including a baby or my mother is going to be in heaven because they deserve to go. Here's a, here's a bonus question. Did anything die in the Garden of Eden? I think you're going to ask me some kind of trick question. <laughs> Wait, what, what, well, I mean, did, did ants die? Did, you know, did anything die? Right. And why did, by the way, this is a different one too. How about mosquitoes? What did they do before the fall? What was their job? I think they were playing violins, little tiny violins. I think they were the soundtrack of, uh, you know. It is true. Maybe uh, no babies die to go to he- die and go to heaven. Maybe they all go. Maybe the elect go. We we just we don't have enough information. But pastorally, we don't really talk this way when we're around grieving parents who have lost a little one. We just know, you know what, Lord, you'll do what's right, and we can trust you. Yeah. How how awful would that be? You know, kind of a shrug, and you know, uh, I, I you hope know, they're elect. I, I mean, on, on a pastoral note, by the way, don't ever. And I just recently had somebody do this death of a family member, you know, were they saved? It's a pointless question. I, I know, I know. Well, this could be a whole show, but we got to keep going. Number 12, if I die with unconfessed sin, I will not go to heaven. Uh, no, Patrick. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a Roman Catholic idea, right? This idea, I mean, I, I mean, what, you know, as you're, as you're dying, you have to think to yourself, do I have any unconfessed sins? Come on, Lord, bring them to my mind. Quick, 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 quick. I, well, we sin so much. How would we ever know all those things? No, I mean, there's just no possible way. I was, uh, had my tonsils out. I was 21. I started coughing because I had a cold and I started to bleed. And I was reading about you can bleed out because of the tonsil you know, cautery, blah, blah, blah. And I started confessing my sins at 21 years old because I thought if I die with unconfessed sins, I mean, that's Lutheranism too, the liberal Lutheranism that I grew up in. That would be awful. If we confess our sins, doesn't mean that we have to verbally or even mentally acknowledge them. It just means we have to agree with God that we are sinners and, you know, there's nothing, nothing good in us. Right. 
For, forgiveness, there's two aspects. Judicial, that is when you're saved, you're justified, i.e. you're not condemned, and parental. And when we do sin, of course, all of our sins have been paid for by Jesus, but to be back in proper fellowship with the Father, we confess our sins. All right, number 13. The main motivation for holiness is fear of punishment and hope of reward. Man, this is so bad, but I, I've heard this, you know, and I... We, we, we live in it. Yeah. Evangelicalism. Pe- people even say, you know, why, why do you, why do you want to... I, I just read recently somebody that I like said something to the effect of, why do we have to preach this way? It's because don't you want people to get their fullest reward? And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is such a hot button these days, and I've done show after show after show. What's the motivation for obedience? We all agree, as evangelical Christians, we should obey. But what's the reason why we obey? And of course, if you're living in a guilt, grace, gratitude world, we, we know the answer. We want to be obedient because we're thankful. I did not know, by the way, Steve, that was a quote from Wesley until the White Horse Inn told me. Yeah. And, and you think, okay... How do you how do you motivate husbands to love your wives? Well, that's chapter five, but chapter one gives you pretty good motivation in terms of election and redemption and other things. You think that the Lord would forgive me every one of my sins. How could I not respond but thankful obedience? In light of all the Christ has done for me, you know, how should I respond? Not, you know, oh, I'm under the dread command of God to, you know, and I don't want to be punished. What if we... He, 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 chastises those whom he loves. Stand by for chastisement. You know what, Steve? I stand convicted by this in my own life. Okay, how do you treat your wife, right? On good days, we want to be sacrificial and nourish and cherish, etc., and love and give ourselves up for them. But we say, well, I'm motivated to be nice to my wife because I, I don't want her to be mad at me. Not that she physically punishes us, but she punishes us with her displeasure. And I hope there's a reward. I hope she's going to be sweet to me. So therefore, that's how I will act. This is bad. I I, I don't know. I I just kind of, yeah, I I don't normally think like that. So, Oh, well, I don't want to think that way, but I find myself thinking that way. That's a sad thing. All right, number 14. God cannot hold someone guilty for the sins of another. This, if I could just drop a word here, this is Pelagianism. This is false, by the way. Pelagius said that Adam's fall had nothing to do with us, right? This is, again, this is Mormonism, folks. You know, they believe that, uh, man, that we're responsible for our own sins and not for Adam's transgression. Right, that God does not impute that. Well, you know, here's the good news. The good news is not only did God impute Adam's sin to everybody, which is the bad news, but he imputes Christ's righteousness to all who believe. We need that imputation, right? We need something that we don't deserve uh, in order to get to heaven. So not only does he hold someone guilty for the sins of another, true, but he also gives us the, the holiness, the righteousness that we need if we believe. Well, this is God's world, and we're just living in it, and he makes the rules, and he sets things up, and he has set things up in a representative fashion. We know that. We have two senators here in Massachusetts that represent us, right? And when they vote, we vote. (laughs) And so that's the federal government. And so everybody says, I don't like to get credit for Adam's sin. Well, I know, but that's God's wisdom. I mean, I would have failed before Adam would have failed, and so would our listeners. But then we have someone who also represents us, 
as Pastor Steve said, the last Adam, uh, the Lord Jesus. And so he, I'm thankful he does federally represent us. That is the Lord Jesus. Number 14, God cannot... Go ahead. I thought we just did 14. Uh, Yeah, you know what? That's why you're here, because otherwise, left to my own devices, I repeat (laughs) points. I say to the congregation, what point am I on again? Okay, number three. (laughs) Number 15, justification is the process. All right, we don't even need to go any farther. Sorry, I said... Right? Yes, but Pastor Steve, I think Romans 5.1, it's in present tense, right? You're being justified. That's what Rome would say. By which a person through faith in Christ and sorrow for his sins, I mean, how many errors are we going to have in here, receives the gift of the Holy Spirit and so becomes a child of God. This is a direct quote, Whitehorse Inn says, from Fundamentals of Catholicism by Kenneth yeah, well, I mean, just looking at that, you know, you must be born again. Oh, but it's a process, lad. I mean, you could just hear Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Let me tell you something, pal. This born again thing is going to take you the rest of your life. Uh, how, how would we phrase this when people say, well, when were you, when were you in the process of being born? <laughs> I mean, that's his... 1960. Talk about a long hours. labor, right? I mean, this is... Uh, uh-huh. No Pitocin either. No <laughs> spiritual... Pitocin. How are you righteous before God? They quote the Heidelberg Catechism, number 60, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, there's more to that answer, but I think that's sufficient. Anytime you think of justification, you should be thinking, dear Christian, courtroom, gavel, not guilty. The opposite is no condemnation, right? Romans chapter 8. What if condemnation was a process? You're in the process of maybe not being condemned. The, the, it, it's just awful, you know, and, and when you see justification is a one-time declaration by God, you know, and it's by virtue of being in Christ, by having his righteousness imputed to you. We're back to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Um, that, that's why we're justified. You know, God is both uh, just and the justifier. You know, he, he, he does what's right and he does it by the process, as you said, because it's his world and we're living in it. He sets the rules and those are the rules that he made. Those who are in Christ are declared just. Even in Romans 4, David, Abraham, right? You've got Abraham, some pagan moon god worshiper, and David did sadly, you know, killing Uriah and sleeping with Bathsheba the other way around, but, you know, what happens then? What's the process of making David holy? Well, if we're talking a progressive sanctification, that's a different story, but it was, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute or account or reckon sin. That's a blessing, not the process, because where would I be in the process? Early, late, halfway, middle? Yeah, and it's not, it's not like God doesn't keep track of the sins, it's in Christ, he erases them all. You know, he no longer counts them to you. He put them on Christ. He treats me like, I mean, he, I am a child, and he treats me like I've never sinned because those sins have been dealt with. Yes. Okay, good. Number 16, God cannot require of us anything which cannot be performed. Hmm. Now, if I just hmm. told you that's a Wesley quote, then you'd probably automatically say... False. And can it be? Oh, no, that'd be Charles. <laughs> Big difference between John and Charles. Do you think Charles was more of a Calvinist than John? I do. Yeah. Um, well, it's false. He cannot require, you know, if we're to be perfect, if we're to be holy, if we're to stop sinning, which God requires, 
and we can't do it, right? I mean, we <laughs> what Paul Paul in Romans seven a perfect picture, right? He says the things I want to do I don't do, the things I don't want to do I do. You know, my my life is a train wreck. He basically says, uh, "I'm the chief of all sinners." He goes on to say, "So if Paul, who's I, I think a pretty pretty good uh, guy, you know, says I I can't do it, then who can?" I know, Steve. Doesn't this go back to the root of many theological problems? The fall, Adam, yes. original sin. And if you get that right, I mean, think about it, dear Christian. God says, "Obey Adam," and Adam didn't obey, he fell. So God now changes his rules and does the Richard Baxter and says, now there's lesser rules for you because I know you can't live up to them. No, instead the gracious God and just God says, no, the rules are still the same, but I will make you obey by giving you a new heart, a new mind. I will convert you. I will justify you. I will regenerate you, etc. So we tell people, unbelievers, believe, and we realize hmm, it's a command and it's a gift. Repent. It's a command and a gift because God's gracious, but he doesn't change his laws because that would change his nature because his laws reflect his nature. That is amazing grace, right? That's why we we are stunned. It's even why when we when we sing amazing grace, sometimes we'll find tears in our eyes. Why? Because we realize the reality of it, that Christ did all this for us, that we don't deserve anything, and yet God grants us these things because of his grace with which he loved us. What if I said God the Father cannot require of the Son anything which the Son could not perform? (laughs) Well, that that would be true but because the Son can do everything, right? He does everything and does it perfectly. Well, and we think about the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and we think one God, right? Every time these days, Steve, every time I think of the Father, I'm trying to think of the Son and the yes. Spirit. Yeah. Every time I think of the Spirit, because it's so easy mm-hmm. for us to divide them, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and all of a sudden we've got a tripartite God. Yeah. Number seventeen, White Horse Inn Quiz, No Compromise Radio, Tuesday Guy, True Christians believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible. I want to slap an asterisk right on that, right? Because, well, it's kind of true. We believe in a literal interpretation where a literal interpretation is warranted, you know. Uh, but, I mean, you can't, nobody could look at, if you try to interpret Revelation literally, what, what's going to happen to you? You're going to wind up in some loony bin. I mean. <laughs> or you're going to be like origin. Yeah. Self-harm. Yeah, you're going to castrate yourself. You're going to, I mean. The, the, yeah, you, you have to look at, uh, as one man says, the genre. <laughs> that man's getting pretty old. I saw a picture of him the other day. I, I think when people hear the word literal in our circles, they think it's a good thing, yes. right? In the sense that it's not a full of, al- I mean, it's not all allegorical. There's some allegory. Okay, fine. But it's, it's, it's something that we're, we're not liberal. We, we take it literally. It really means something. But... I think what Ligonier is after, there's a, a, a wooden literalness that's wrong. Yeah, the white horse end, but crass... What I, I call it? You, you said Ligonier, oh, but, yeah, okay. you know, uh, I, there's a crass literalism that can really... Uh, it, it doesn't help, but actually causes you to stumble if you if you really, you know, like origin. Right. And I think probably what's in their craw as well is a dispensational hermeneutic that lends itself more to this literalism versus, let's say, with the book of Revelation, something more census literalis, the literal sense, sense of the words, genre, 
that type of thing. That's or, what I think. you know, creating a covenant where it doesn't expressly say covenant and, you know, all those kind of right, things. Right, that the dispensationalists would say. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. I, I, to me, that's just such a no-brainer. What, we say the word Trinity. Why can't we say covenant of works? It's an economy of words. If you want to explain it every single time in length, then you can. But I think just people are afraid of the word covenant. Yep. Second Samuel 7 didn't say covenant. Right? Is it a covenant? It is. It is because it was said, I think, elsewhere too. All right. Number 18, God helps those who help themselves in a biblical, is a biblical sound principle. Romans 5 says, while we were yet helpless, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, he died for us. I mean, that, so the answer is false. This is, uh, I believe, Benjamin Franklin. So, Can you imagine? Most everyone thinks that. We do some, God does some, transactional, give and take. Uh, God is active, we are passive. I think that's the best way to think about it broadly. I wouldn't mind it if it said government helps those who help themselves. (laughs) Oh, please, (laughs) please, please. I almost started going into a Smith lyric there, but I, I decided not to. Two more questions, one for the white horse in and a bonus question. Though no one is perfect, the Lord looks on the heart to see who really loves him. Disneyland. Disney. Trust your heart. Oh. In our hearts, we we rely. Um, you know, Jeremiah said, the heart is weak, uh, wicked, deceitful, and who can know it? And the answer is nobody. You know, we even if we think we know our hearts, our hearts lie to us. You know, our, our hearts, our minds still impacted by sin. There's no way we can possibly hope that when God looks at our hearts, he's going to see a pure heart. Because a pure heart does not exist in this world. The only pure heart ever was the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that is exactly true. And when you think of Lord looking at her heart, how could David praise God in Psalm 139 when he said, you know my heart, you know my intentions, you know my words before I even talk about them, you deeply know me. And then he says, it's, I praise you for all this. The only possible way you could ever say that is with an advocate. Yeah. And a mediator. How can you praise God with the x-ray on your soul and he knows the spots of sin there? Was God looking at his heart when he took those extra wives and thinking, good job, David, way to go. Proud well, he, did, he just did that for political reasons and alliances. God mm, knew his heart. Mm, uh-huh. Yeah, that makes it okay. That was the White Horse Inn quiz. But Steve, there needs to be a round number. There needs to be an even number of divided by 10. And so we need to make it to a true 20 question quiz. And you it's, know, e- it's easy for grading purposes. Then it's five easy. points per question. Totally. Everything's yeah. five points, five points of Calvinism, five doctrines of grace, five smooth stones David picks up. Mm, it's all mm. the number five is very important. And you know what? There's a lot of questions we could ask for basic Bible doctrine, but I think we would be very unique in coming up with our final question. I don't think any other person, theologian, podcast, or anyone else could come up with the same question we would because they don't have the insight we do. Mm, Question number 20. We're deep. Question number 20. The Old Testament is a Christian book. True or false? Well, obviously it's true, right? And, 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 you know, when people initially hear that, they might go, well, no, because... You know, we don't know about Jesus until the New Testament. So how could it be a Christian book? Well, what did Jesus say? You know, he said, you know, the Old Testament speaks about me. You know, uh, the, the prophets, uh, uh, the, you know, Moses and the prophets and all that. And when you think about it, here, 
you know, I know why this question exists, and I'll try to be fast here. You know, I've heard sermons, and I've heard people, and I probably even preach sermons, but I've heard people say that if, you know, a, uh, a rabbi could hear my sermon and be pleased with it, I'd be all right with that. And I'm like, no, that's wrong. They they should, a rabbi who listens to me preaching the Old Testament should be going, you know, part of what he said was okay, and then he got to that Jesus part, and it really set my nerves on, you know, on edge. Totally. What Christian book, what Christian Bible did the disciples and the apostles and those that live from 33 AD generally until the first epistle was written, whether it's Galatians or, or James, what did they do for those 12 years? Answer, the word Christian comes, God has the word Christ in it, and the Messiah is talked about all over the Old Testament, right? It's the theologian that says, you turn on the lights and you see everything that's in the room. They've always been in the room, but now we have the light of the New Testament to see the passage about who Jesus is in the Old Testament. It is a Christian book. That's why we should preach it as such. When Paul went to the synagogues and reasoned with the Jews, what do you think he was doing, busting out the New Testament? <laughs> oh, he had the four spiritual laws book. <laughs> Of course he went to the Old Testament. Read, dear Christian. Start with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and read it like a Christian, right? Because you're going to see Christ to Psalm 22, 23, 24. You're going to see Christ. No Compromise Radio with Pastor Mike Abendroth is a production of Bethlehem Bible Church in West Boylston. Bethlehem Bible Church is a Bible teaching church firmly committed to unleashing the life-transforming power of God's Word through verse-by-verse exposition of the sacred text. Please come and join us. Our service times are Sunday morning at 1015 and in the evening at 6. We're right on Route 110 in West Boylston. You can check us out online at bbcchurch.org or by phone at 508 835 3400.